Welcome to The Doctor Is Out, a podcast hosted by Dr. Sharif Akili, resident physician at Stanford Hospital and investor at Polaris Partners. Join Sharif in exploring the extraclinical practice of medicine as he interviews healthcare leaders who have gone from bedside to build companies, run health systems, spearhead public policy, and pursue many other paths where they lend their unique bedside perspectives. Today's guest is a biotech VC at Atlas Ventures, the VP of Business Development at Remix Therapeutics, and an internist, Dr. Alex Harding. We have a really special treat on today's episode. Our guest is an internal medicine physician at MGH, a biotech venture capitalist at Atlas Ventures, the VP of Business Development and Corporate Strategy at Remix Therapeutics, a contributor to the biotech newsletter, The Timmerman Report, and overall, honestly, just one of the most knowledgeable, grounded, and good human beings I've ever met, Dr. Alex Harding. Also in full disclosure, Alex and I go way back, and I'm incredibly stoked to have an open conversation with him about biotech that I hope will be fruitful for our listeners. And maybe we'll have Alex sweat a little bit today, too. <laughs> Alex, thanks so much for taking the time to be with me today, man. Hey, Sharif. Good to be here. So... Alex, I wanted to sort of break down this discussion into two parts. Um, I want to first um, use our beginning of this interview to just take a moment and talk a little bit actually about getting an MD, MBA, doing residency, and then going into biotech because we have eerily similar backgrounds in that way. And I think it'd be interesting for us to sort of reflect on that. And then the second half of the discussion, I want to go a little bit more into the biotech industry, building a biotech company what it means to be an EIR and a venture firm. Maybe we'll chat deals. Um, who knows where that'll go there. But to start, uh, my my first question is, what are your thoughts about uh, getting an MBA um, as a physician um, who wants to go into biotech? And you know, what are your thoughts generally about thinking about whether to get an MBA as a physician who's interested in these other areas of medicine? Yeah, no, it's a good question, and I, I wish I had a simple answer to it, but um, it's it's a little bit, my my view on it is a little bit nuanced. You know, I'll go back to kind of how I made that decision, and for me, it was the right decision to do the MBA. Um, I was at Hopkins, as you know, and um, I had gotten interested in the business side of medicine, actually, even before I started med school, uh, and joined Hopkins and was hoping that I would get exposure to that in med school and then quickly realized that that's really not what med school is about. And especially at a place like Hopkins, that's you know kind of old school about how they uh, think of um, clinical training. And so I started thinking about what I would want to do to get that, that little extra piece of, of interest in business management and a healthcare company filled out that I wasn't getting in, in med school itself. I thought about doing an MPH um, thought about other kinds of research approaches that might be a way to, to get beyond just pure clinical medicine. But I gravitated towards the MBA as sort of a, a true training in business. And I had basically no idea what I was getting into, um, but, but I went for it. Um, and I think that was... <laughs> I'm smiling right now because yeah. I feel exactly but, the so same. So that was... Um, Sorry, keep going. I, yeah. I, I went for it kind of, be, and I think maybe because I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Um, I think that there's some people 
I don't know why, I don't know if it's their upbringing, what they were like, what jobs their parents had, or if it's just innate. Some people have a really good instinct about business and just know how business works. Um, I've encountered people like that, including MBs, um, who don't necessarily need to get the MBA to get that. Uh, I didn't have that. And so for me, the MBA was really eye-opening to a wide range of of different aspects of healthcare beyond just the patient doctor relationship in the hospital setting. Um, and so I use that time to learn a lot about the overall healthcare ecosystem, everything from payer provider, healthcare IT, uh, startups on the services side, and then obviously into biotech. Um, and it was just a great opportunity to explore that whole space, learn a lot about how business works and how specific businesses make money and, and achieve the aims that they're set out to do. And that allowed me then to have a framework for, okay, what do I want to do next in my career? And that's really set me up for those jobs as we'll probably get into, but I had an internship as you did Sharif at SR1, which was my, my entree into um, biotech and really set me up for where I am now. And that was because I was doing the MBA. So very, very helpful for me. Um, I think I wouldn't be where I am now if, it, if I hadn't done the MBA. I think there's some people who just sort of have the innate business inks, instincts and have connections and know how to wheel and deal or whatever it is, and don't necessarily need the MBA to help them get there. Um, and there's other people that do it with a couple of years in consulting and kind of get that similar type of experience of sort of the basic training of how business works, but are getting paid to do it instead of paying tuition. So there's other ways to go about getting there. Uh, I do think for me, the MBA was the, was the right approach. Yeah, I could not agree more. I, I remember in business school hearing that there's sort of one of three reasons you do business school. One is to actually learn business, which I feel like, you know, the MDs definitely went to business school with that mindset. I really knew nothing. <laughs> it's it's quite, quite humbling to think about. And uh, then there are the people who do it sort of because it's required uh, as part mm -hmm. of their acceleration at their career, their, their PE firm or, you know, investment banking or so forth. And then there are the people who sort of need a break. Um, and they go to business school to sort of get, to get that. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's surprising sometimes people who reach out and ask like how to get into business school from a clinical background and expect that you sort of have to know about business. And I, I actually don't think that's necessarily the case. No, yeah. Um, and they understand that. Um, when did you discover then you wanted to do biotech investing? I would say during that internship at SR1, I obviously had an interest in it. Um, because I went and pursued that opportunity SR1, but I'll just, I know you had Simeon on um, a little yep. while back. I listened to that podcast, um, but for people who may not have heard that, so Simeon is a partner at SR1 and um, he took me on as an intern out in San Francisco back in the summer of 2014. It was actually right after I graduated B school, but I did the interview process and everything while I was still in my second year of, of business school. And so I, I had interest in the idea of investing and figured, okay, biotech sounds good, but I wasn't really committed to specifically biotech VC. And I think for me, it was, I was a history major in college. I was, mm -hmm. I didn't consider myself a real science person. 
um, you know, I liked what I did in med school on the science side, but it wasn't really something I identified with as a core skill. And so I wasn't necessarily expecting that biotech was really going to be the, the right uh, specialty within investing. Um, but got to SR1 working with Simeon and, and Jill Carroll there and had just a fantastic experience and discovered about myself that I actually really enjoyed digging into scientific literature, speaking to scientific KOLs, thinking about how to translate really exciting basic science from an idea or a paper to actually something that could treat patients. And, and I, was, I was there at a good time because it was um, a time when Simeon had initial conversations with CRISPR Therapeutics. He ended up leading their Series A. And um, you know that was obviously a very, very exciting time to be involved in anything related to CRISPR at the, in the early days. Uh, we also started thinking about cell therapy companies which eventually led Simeon to starting Encarta Therapeutics. That was also, cell therapy was pretty nascent still at that point. So really exciting thing to be in, involved with. But seeing all those really important transformative technologies early, early on and thinking about how they could turn into a therapy for patients one day was, was just exciting stuff to be a part of. And now we're seeing it actually bear fruit, fruit seven years later. We're seeing these therapies reaching patients, which is, which is exciting. Um, but that's what got me into biotech uh, and biotech VC in the first place. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. That's absolutely incredible. And I, I think too, it goes to how much of an incredible mentor Simeon was, frankly, because I yeah. think there are a lot of people, I won't mention names of like firms or some internships that, you know, some people did and sort of are just grinded out to do really rote, you know, literature reviews and sort of being a, a research monkey for some mm. other people. And you don't get to have as much of a finger on the pulse of the space you're working at. Um, yeah, no, Simeon is one of the best mentors I've ever had for sure. Yeah. yeah. Great friend too. Did you ever consider investing outside of biotech? Had you did it ever cross your mind? Were you ever seduced by devices or services in health tech? Yeah, you know, I definitely did think about it. And I think the more and more experience that I got with biotech, I was less enchanted by health services, health IT devices, etc. Um I I got really hooked on the science and and feeling like there's something really real about a drug that you, you could maybe formulate as a pill or an injection one day that has a biological effect, targets a protein or whatever it is that it's doing in the human body to have, have a desired effect. And I think, you know, devices certainly can do that, but devices are, I guess, more in the surgical realm and I'm an internist at heart um, and services and IT um, very important. Like I absolutely think it's very important, but it's, it's a little squishier, right? And yeah. there's not as much yeah. hard data to go on. And so that's uh, just something that I am less excited about. It's purely personal preference. Um, but Do you ever miss like the bread and butter business questions that you don't encounter necessarily as much? And by like, maybe this is a false statement, but I feel like, you know, when you think about like CAC and LTV and go to market strategy and, you know, sales yeah. channels and so forth, do you ever miss thinking about those types of things? Yeah, maybe a little bit. I try to apply some of those, not not the specific ones you just mentioned, but some of the kind of higher level business concepts to biotech too. Like I, 
one of them that I really like to think about is product market fit. And, and the way that that's, that's described in biotech is the TPP, the target product profile. And um, I think the TPP is one of the most important things you can do as a company is really fleshing out the TPP early on and then building a drug that meets that TPP. And a lot of companies actually do it the reverse way. They sort of find something that has a biological effect and then try to build a TPP to fit it. And, and that's, to me, that's the backwards way to do it. But it's really, it's really the same concept as product market fit. What does the patient need? What does the doctor need? And let's build a, a therapy that meets that need. And that's what the TPP should be. Hmm. So on that topic, uh, how do you usually approach a biotech investment? Do you have any type of formula or are there any elements you found most important to really focus on? Yeah, I don't have a formula. Um, it's more of a heuristic, but there are some points that I'll bring out um, or I'll point out. One of them for sure is that TPP. Yeah. And I, you know, when I was investing at Atlas, I would see a fair amount of companies that did not have a clearly articulated TPP and I couldn't articulate it for them. Um, ones where there was really cool science in some cases, uh, even potentially an indication that was an important indication, but the approach that they were taking to address the need in that indication didn't make sense. Um, you know, I'll give an extreme example. If you had, um, cell therapy or gene editing for acne, right? Like yeah. cool science, really great, exciting science, acne. Sure. There's unmet need there, I guess, but there's no patient on earth that's going to want to put themselves through a conditioning regimen for cell therapy and the risks of gene editing, um, to, to address acne when there's other therapies that are available that do a pretty good job. So there's, you know, that, that's, that's crucial. I'm giving an extreme example there, but there's lots of cases where that comes up in reality. Um, and so that's, that's key to me. And that's the bias as an MD. I think if most of your listeners are MDs, they can probably identify with that. Um, other things that I look for, I think these are somewhat obvious. The science should be high quality. It doesn't have to be from a famous lab or coming from a famous university. Honestly, I don't, really care that much about that. In fact, I think sometimes you can get stuff that's less picked over if you go a little bit outside of the beaten path. Um, and, but, but it should be high quality science, reproducible. I really do like human genetics. If you can find evidence that there's yeah. human genetics for a target that goes a long way. Um, and then the team, and everyone always says the team, and so it's a little bit cliche, but it's cliche for a reason is that the team actually really does matter. And if you have a team that can execute, even if the science isn't, doesn't turn out to be the best idea, the team can make something else out of it. Um, conversely, if you have a great science, but a team that doesn't know how to execute, they can really destroy a lot of value. So having a team that, that is high quality is key to any investment that you make. Um, and then I think on the early stage side, those are probably the key things what you also need to be thinking about and what comes, I think, probably more naturally to MDs is what does the clinical path look like? How do you get to a clinical proof of concept study specifically? Um, you need to be able to get in. Doesn't like, Of course, getting approval is important, 
But more important for an early stage company is thinking about how do we prove in patients that this is doing something and doesn't have to be an approvable endpoint yet, but some kind of marker of target engagement or a surrogate marker for efficacy is key. And having a clinical trial path that can get you there without having to spend you know, $100 million to do so is, is really important as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is interesting. I do th- completely agree that these points are very important. And it is also a little bit sort of how the MD mind works. Um, yeah. And sort of on the, this topic too, I was curious, what would you imagine to be actually the best training to be a biotech investor? Do you think, I, I, I feel like sometimes like step one knowledge is pretty useless, but I find it pretty useful for biotech investing. I feel like like it's like the, the best intense, you know, if you need to like learn something really quickly to really get good at biotech investing, that might not be a bad place to start in a weird way. Yeah. Um, have you ever thought about that? Or have you even thought about like what, you know, there's like these different groups of biotech investors. There's the, you know, people with PhD backgrounds, some people have finance backgrounds, there are business people with more operational backgrounds and they're, they're more clinical people. Do you have any thoughts on what might make somebody best prepared to, to think about biotech companies and invest in this area? Yeah, uh, I would say all of the above. And I don't mean that each individual investor needs to have all of those skills, but that a team of investors, if you're at a firm, should have representation of MDs, PhDs, people who've been in companies, um, and, and that, that balance is important. So I'll talk about my time at Atlas. Um, when I started at Atlas, I was on the junior side, so non-partner side, I was the only MD there. Um, and the, the rest were PhDs or if not PhDs, pretty hardcore science background type people. Um, and I think for early stage investing, having a really strong bench on basic science is important. You have to yeah. be able to evaluate the quality of the science that is sort of fundamental to the investment. But complementing that with people that have a clinical lens can understand the disease context, how doctors are thinking about their patients, how patients, what their experience is like, what their standard of care is like, and what the clinical trial path could look like, what endpoints are going to be better than others. All of those questions are ones that an MD can be really helpful to answer. Um, And you had brought up operators, and, and operators can be MBs, PhDs, or neither, um, but I do think operators are, are really valuable. I, I found actually now that I've transitioned from the Atlas investment team to Remix on the business development side, it's, it's given me more of an appreciation for how useful it can be to have investors that have been operators and companies before, because they can understand um, the pressures and the uh, the high priority items on the operating side that sometimes investors who haven't done that before just don't have the appreciation for. Um, So I I think having a mix of everything is really important, but there's definitely a place for people with a clinical background to to get into investing. Mm. Could you share a little bit about actually your current role as the VP of Business Development Corporate Strategy at Remix? What does it mean to be in that role and, and maybe share a little bit on like what Remix is also doing. Sure. Let me start with what Remix is doing. So Remix is a, uh, by the way, I helped to get Remix started when I was at Atlas. So it started in 2019. The, Pete Smith is an entrepreneur in residence at Atlas who co-founded it. And I worked with him uh, during the early days 
thinking about the, the approach that we were going to take and building out the plan for the company. Uh, the company is a platform company that uses small molecules to modulate RNA processing. So it's really exciting in the sense that we're basically developing a new modality for small molecules that allows us to go after targets that have conventionally been considered undruggable, at least at the protein level. And um, I have a, a love for small molecules. You know, it's, in some ways, it's an unsexy, old-fashioned technology. But to me, there's nothing better than a once daily pill that you can mm -hmm. up titrate, die, down titrate, um, and um, have that kind of fine grained control over the pharmacology that you don't really get as easily with biologics. So being able to do these manipulations at the RNA level, uh, decreasing or increasing gene expression, having other kind of genetic effects to modulate undruggable targets that are really important in disease driving targets. That's, that's really exciting stuff that, that we're working on. And, and the science has been going really well and we've made great progress. So I'll stop, I'll stop going on about Remix, but um, it's a good company. I'm excited about it. I love my the way you role, describe it. <laughs> so it. my role at Remix is you know, business development. And the way I think of business development is we have to bring in the money to pay for the science to happen. To me, a company, the most important thing in a company is always the science, what's being done to advance that science, but it needs fuel. It needs cash to pay for all the work that gets done. And that's where, that's where business development comes in. And so it can take multiple forms. It can be taking uh, equity dollars. So investment dollars from venture capitalists or from you know, public markets through an IPO. Uh, and it can also take the form of collaborations with other pharma companies. So um, we talk to pharma companies, we um, discuss collaborations with them, there's protracted negotiations that happen, and then um, you hope that you can actually get a deal done that works for Remix adds value and brings cash into the company that can then advance your programs to the next stage in development. And the same time, we're also, of course, working on an investment side and trying to bring in equity dollars to, to fund the company. So we raised a Series A last December. That was um, a $67 million round. Um, great group of investors that came in there, um, led by Foresight, also brought in Arch, cast in, and then our seed investors are um, Atlas and the Collin Group. And we also brought Alexandria into that Series A. Um, so we raised $83 million today. And you know it's an ongoing process to, to keep the company funded because we're doing lots of good science and it costs money. Yeah, I, I think it's very useful for our listeners to hear what it means to be in BD or corporate strategy at a biotech company because that's often an experience channel for people with more limited business backgrounds to gain that orthogonal knowledge space. To that effect... I've had, Alex, a lot of recent graduates, co-residents, folks either through their own research or research of others they've collaborated with, come to me looking to be first-time entrepreneurs in biotech. I was curious, have you ever seen a scientific founder turn out to be the CEO of a company in any of your investments, or if you've seen that in other investments? I know one of our investments, that's been the case, and it's worked out quite well. We actually had him on the podcast, a fantastic human being, Andy Beck, who is a physician scientist, MD, PhD, who went on to be the CEO of Path AI, which is an incredible company. But I feel like that's more the exception and the rule. 
And it seems it can be quite challenging to try to launch a biotech company with only a scientific or clinical background. Have you encountered this? Do you have any advice for people who might aspire to go into entrepreneurship in biotech from a clinical or research background? Yeah, um, it's really hard to do. I, I agree with what you said. That's a, that's a big challenge. And I was trying to think about people that I've seen do that successfully. Certainly, I've, I've encountered people who have gone from an academic role to have a role in a company, but to be the CEO, that's tough. Um, the one person I was just, that came to mind, I'm sure there's others, but um, I don't know if you know Rachel Horowitz at Caribou, uh, it's a CRISPR company in the yeah, Bay Area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I believe she was uh, either a PhD or postdoc in Jennifer Dadna's lab and worked on the technology and then spun it out into, into Caribou. And actually, when I was at SR1, we met with her. So that was back in 2014. Wow. Uh, had an introductory conversation. So that, that's one example. And Any sure insights? What was she like? Any insights? Like how she was it? Was it that she was sort of the right place at the right time? Um, it was the technology sort of lent herself well. Um, any insights on how that was able to be executed? Yeah, I, so I, I can't say that I have a ton of insights because I don't know Rachel that well. We just met the one time. Um, obviously, CRISPR is a pretty much a unique situation just in terms of how transformative that technology was. It was a true step change in gene editing. And um, so I guess that left maybe room for academics who had played a role in those key um, discoveries like Jennifer Doudna to then go in and create companies and, and they probably had a lot of leverage to to put the people in that they wanted to put in and, and you know investors were very interested in funding it regardless of how it was started because the science was just so exciting so i think there was probably more leeway there um mm -hmm. and that's how it, i'm guessing that's how it ended up working out and and she's still a ceo i think so you know i must have something must have gone right along the way for her to still be in that position uh, seven years later. So um, it can be done. I would say if I were talking to someone who was say a resident or a postdoc and was thinking about doing it, I would, I would caution them against it. Honestly, um, you know, if they're really committed and they care a lot about entrepreneurship and they want to take that risk, they can, but I think it's hard to learn when you're on your own. And if you can, take the time, take a few years to learn the ropes in a setting where you have people around you who have done it before, you can learn from them, then you're going to be set up to, to then go and start that company on your own. You'll be much better positioned to succeed than if you're going from basically no knowledge and trying to figure it out as you go without having the mentorship and the people around you who have done it before. Um, so I would, I would be cautious about doing it, to be honest. I know that's a that's a negative view, uh, pessimistic and, and certainly anti-entrepreneurial and the sort of aspir aspirational views of entrepreneurship that get uh, promoted in B-schools these days. <laughs> um, but but I, think, I think biotech requires a, quite a lot of, of hands-on experience to be successful um, for most people. And there's always exceptions. And I think getting that experience learning from people who've done it before and then going and doing it is going to be a, a better path to success. Yeah. Yeah. And I think honestly it is insightful because, you know, 
um, there aren't very many biotech companies started by first-time entrepreneurs. Yeah. I'm going to take a hard pivot now because before we close out this episode, I really want to ask you about a biotech company that you wrote about in the Timmerman Report just last month that's been getting a lot of attention called EQRX. So for our listeners who may not be familiar, EQRX is a company that was founded just last year that is really trying to disrupt the pharma industry and do that by actually radically lowering drug prices. And the market does regard them as having a serious chance of doing this and changing the industry. They just announced last month they're going to go public and raise $1.8 billion through a SPAC. But their business model around how they're going to achieve this seemingly impossible feat is sort of complicated, and how they're doing it hasn't been described very well. In fact, actually, I have not seen anyone describe it well until I read your piece in the Timmerman Report, Alex. And for our listeners, I would check out the Timmerman Report as a source of biotech news just to read Alex's posts. Your pieces are honestly so refreshingly clear, accessible, concise, and relevant. They, they just give a good analysis of the biotech industry that's hard to find. That aside, Alex, could you share a little bit about what EQRX is doing and their business model? Yeah. So really interesting company. I've, I've been following it. I think they they announced that what that they were getting launched at JP Morgan in 2020. So right before COVID. Um, and it got a lot of attention back then. And I've kind of kept tabs on it a little bit. I know a couple of people have joined there and then they've had this big announcement that you mentioned about this SPAC. And so it's gotten a lot more attention recently. Um, but it's, it's a really interesting approach. Their, their goal is to lower drug prices, which I think is an admirable goal. The way they're getting there, it's, it's a little bit complicated. You have to think about how drugs are developed and, um, and also some of the dynamics on the business side of, of compensation with these relationships between pharmacy benefit managers and insurers, insurers and pharma companies to actually reimburse um, pharma companies for the drugs that they're selling. But just like a really quick basic explanation is that they're trying to lower drug prices by creating drugs, developing drugs at a much lower cost approach, either by scaffold hopping or by to some extent, potentially by in-licensing drugs that have already gotten uh, through a couple of, of stages of clinical trials. Um, and then they take those, those, those compounds through um, late stage preclinical or through clinical development, depending on where that asset started. And so they end up basically with me too drugs. So they're going to go after targets that are already well validated where there's already a drug on the market but that drug is branded and expensive. And their goal is to then go and develop a drug that's a me too, very similar uh, in terms of, often in terms of structure, but certainly in terms of mechanism. And they're not taking risks on the biology there because it's already been proven out. They're, um, they're just trying to get to the clinic, get to the market as quickly as possible so that then they, what they do is then they price that drug dramatically lower than the branded first, first to first to market drug. Right, that's the scaffold hopping where you sort of you know build that similar drug and sort of copycat. Yeah, it. so so scaffold hopping, um, you know, first of all, there's nothing inherently wrong with scaffold hopping. It's it's totally legal from an IP standpoint. 
And um, it's something that's been done for a long time. Pharmas do it all the time in developing drugs. Uh, you know, just as an example, the statins, how many statins are there on the market? And, and um, many of them came from scaffold hopping. Same thing with tyrosine kinase inhibitors, but you enhance the molecule for different properties. And then what's different is that in the past, when you had a Me Too drug, even if it really wasn't differentiated much in terms of its inherent properties, when it got approved, the pharma would price it in line or even above where um, the existing first-in-class drug had come in. And what EQRX is doing differently is pricing way lower than that. And they're trying to basically get market share by, by pricing below the, the competition, which makes a lot of sense. But in the pharma space, it is a totally new approach that hasn't been done before. Um, and it's getting a lot of attention both positive and negative about what impact that could have uh, on the industry. And there's this, these things called like the global buyers club they were trying to do to, to, to completely yeah. cut out the pharmacy benefit managers. Right. Cause they, that's like what's I, I, I at least perceive as what makes people think that they're actually being serious. And this is not just, you know, a PR stunt or something. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think that's right. So the PBMs, just a quick explanation of, of how they work, because it's, it's really important to understand that healthcare is not a free market and yeah. there's lots of skewed incentives and PBMs are an example of that, where PBMs essentially act as an intermediary between insurers and pharmas and, and they decide what drugs are going to go onto a formulary for an insurance company. They negotiate the pricing. Um, and so they have an incentive from the insurer to try to get lower prices in one way, but actually in reality, they get a, a cut from whatever the whatever drugs end up getting prescribed. And so they in reality don't really have that much of an incentive to go for lower price drugs. In fact, in many cases, they won't want to have higher price drugs where they can get a cut and they call it a, a rebate that the pharma pays them. Um, for the drugs that are being prescribed. And so, although on the face of it, they should be acting in, in the interest of lowering drug prices, in reality, that doesn't often happen. And so that's a problem for EQRX, because if their whole approach is to lower drug prices, PBMs are a gate, gatekeeper uh, to get their drugs sold, and PBMs don't have an interest in lowering drug prices, that's a problem. So what EQRX is doing is trying to cut them out of the equation by selling directly to the companies that are um, delivering those drugs to patients. So either um, companies that have integrated care like a Kaiser, where there's sort of an insurer and a provider at the same time, or potentially directly to insurance companies um, that, that are paying for the drugs and cutting the intermediary, the PBM out of the equation. So that's what the Global Buyers Club is. Um, and it could also work, by the way, with European countries where the government itself is the buyer. So like, you know, the National Health Service in the UK, for example. Yeah, I feel like if anything, regardless of whether EQRX is successful or you know, we'll talk in a moment a little bit about the negative repercussions of what they're doing. I feel at least they're sort of, you know, shining more light on sort of this perverse incentives between PBMs and pharma companies. And, you know, critics may say that, you know, their relationship is a bit of a dog and pony show. You know, each party blames the other for higher drug prices. 
they shift the spotlight in each other enough to distract from real issues at hand. And then the status quo goes on and, you know, we're decades into talking about drug pricing legislation, for example, you know, executives go up on yeah. Congress and you know, things are sort of status quo still. So, you know, EQRX, they're, they're, they're using something that is okay, right? You, you had mentioned um, scaffold hopping has been done before. Yeah. That's okay. They're, they're, they're um, trying to reduce the cost of development of drugs. They're trying to lower prices. They're, they're, they're cutting out these boogeyman PBMs. So where then is the, what's the big deal? Where, where are the, where yeah. are the challenges here? Yeah. Um, well, so as a, a quick aside, I would say some people do have a problem with some of the specifics of scaffold hopping. Okay. Um, and I, I've heard that some of the EQRX molecules are extremely closely related to a branded drug mm -hmm. and may not really pass muster in terms of being different enough to actually get um, distinct IP and, and have freedom to operate. But that being said, you know, I think scaffold hopping in itself is, is a valid approach. It's been done many times before. Um, but to me, what the, the bigger risk is here is, is more of a fundamental one. And it's that you have um, EQRX coming in and trying to reap the benefits of all of the work that's being done on innovation, discovery of new targets by another company. And so imagine you're a pharma company that's just put a lot of money and time into discovering a new target, developing a new drug, putting it through all the clinical trials and getting it onto the market and the drug works beautifully. And then EQRX comes, comes right behind you. They've been following your progress the whole way. And they're a couple of years behind you. They get to clinic and they price way below and take all the market from you. And, and you can't reap the benefit of all the work that you did. So EQRX is, is, has the risk of devaluing innovation and making it so that there is little incentive for a pharma company to invest the money in discovery of new targets and new mechanisms. Um, and so there's the potential for uh, slowed progress on, on new therapies for patients. So do you think then that it's ever possible really for biotech to innovate and lower prices at the same time? It just seems like we keep innovating and raising prices. You know, <laughs> you would think that it almost feels like, you know, capitalist business people, we love the gladiators that can use the free market to make things more efficient, cheaper, lower prices, kumbaya, keep the government out of it, you know, being simplistic, yeah. obviously. Um, is that just a, uh, a notion of fallacy in biotech for things to be both more innovative and cheaper? Or am I thinking about this wrong? Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of people in biotech and in general who think that the free market can solve all problems. And I think for healthcare, including biotech, that's a really naive view. For Healthcare is not a free market. I said this before. Mm -hmm. It's it's not, and it can't be. You know, we have we have patients. There's a social good here. As it's not a purely economic question. There's the the question of patients and and their well being to take into account. But in the specific case of biotech, the whole biotech industry is based on monopolies. Yeah, that's true. A patent a patent is a social contract where pharma is granted a temporary monopoly in exchange for 
um, the work that they've done to develop that that drug and the, the science, the, the effort that went into the R&D on that. And so it's not a free market by definition. It's yeah. a monopoly on that drug. And to, to think that that it should operate under the, the principles of free market is, is pretty naive, I think. Um, it's also heavily regulated. The FDA is a core component of the of the whole biotech industry. I don't think anyone in, in, in pharma, and at least in large pharma, would be interested in eliminating the FDA because it provides a very important function in, in determining what drugs are worthy of being approved. It gives credibility to pharma companies once they have a drug approved that it really is doing something. And it tells doctors a lot about what, what to be prescribing to patients. So a uh, heavily regulated industry needs to be that way. Um, and, and so I think we should just do away with the concept that free markets are going to solve everything in biotech. It's not the case. Um, you know, there's a lot of controversy now about drug pricing legislation that's in Congress. Um, mm -hmm. And people in biotech are really worried about the potential for uh, negotiations. So the, the big question is whether Medicare should negotiate drug right, prices. Right. Um, and people in biotech are worried, and I think understandably so, that if Medicare negotiates drug prices, they're going to lower drug prices quite a bit. And since Medicare kind of sets the price that other insurers generally go off of, um, that's going to lower prices across the board in the U.S. And the U.S. represents by far the largest market and could have a big impact on, on revenues. So I don't disagree with all any of that. At the same time, um, I don't think that it's a sustainable solution for pharmas to just pick a price and go with it. Mm -hmm. I think that pharmas are inevitably going to try to pick the highest price they can possibly get away with. They have no um, real accountability for the drug price that they select. Yes, the PBMs do negotiate and there's all these rebates that get paid out and, and, and they bring prices down to a modest extent but um, not nearly enough. And, um, and really pharmas can set their own price. And that's not a, that's not a free market solution either yeah. because um, Medicare, for example, is required to cover and reimburse for any drug that gets FDA approved essentially with some exceptions. Um, and so, you know, we're not talking about a true free market solution is in the current state. Um, I think that it's, it's reasonable to have some degree of regulation of what price Medicare is paying for, for drugs. I think that devil is in the details of how that price gets determined. I think it should be anchored on what's the value to patients that the drug is providing. If it's a drug that's life-saving, well-tolerated for a disease with high MET need, then that price should be higher than a, a drug that's marginally beneficial over the existing standard of care. Um, and that should be factored in, but it needs to be done in a really thoughtful manner. Um, and I have reservations about ICER, which is the cost-effectiveness right. group that's the most well-known well as well. So I don't think we have the, the right solution in place yet, but I do think that some degree of negotiation with Medicare is, is warranted and probably necessary to keep prices from just rising um, without any, any limitation. That's incredibly insightful. I've never had somebody sort of explain it in that way. Uh, and it makes a lot of sense. You don't really have a free market 
system. So you can't really have a free market solution, but at the same time, uh, the solutions that you're left with are very thorny. Yeah, you said it better than I. <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. I always appreciate picking your brain, Alex. That was uh, really interesting to think through. So to close off the episode on that really thought-provoking note, I'm going to ask a question I ask everybody that's a little bit more light. And it's basically a question where we ask our guests if they've encountered anything recently that they've enjoyed. It could be an article, a book, a TV show, song, a movie, another podcast, anything. We had a guest, uh, our last guest talk about a tricycle, um, and which was really cool. Um, is there anything you came across recently, Alex, that you found interesting or compelling that you might recommend? Um, I'll tell you what I'm reading right now, and I've never read it before, um, is Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman. Huh. Um, it's sort of his by far most famous work. And um, I guess I had maybe read some excerpts of it before and thought it was over the top and I got turned off by it. This was probably back in college or even high school. Um, but I, I got reintroduced to it recently and started reading it. And it's been really just a lot of fun to read. It's um, the exuberance that Whitman has and that he writes with is, is really remarkable and inspiring. And I think for biotech people or science people, it's actually, um, you know, it's a good fit. Whitman has a, a kind of profound love of nature. Yeah. You know, the, the name leaves of grass impl implies that. And um, so he's he's an admirer of, of nature and of science and of kind of how the natural world works. And so he's not taking a scientific approach per se, but I think it's something that a person with a scientific background would appreciate. So it's a it's a fun book and, and one that I've actually surprised myself getting getting into. I love that so much. I love that so much. Well, thank you, Alex. I really appreciate it. I had so much fun to uh, you know take this time to catch up and chat and you know record while we were doing it. Yeah, that's great talking to you to you too, Sharif. That does it for this episode of The Doctors Out. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support us, please leave a review on Apple Podcast or whichever podcast platform you use. And if there's something you found you really liked or didn't like or would like to make a suggestion, feel free to reach out by email at info at tdio.org. 